So this morning we have the opportunity to hear from uh, our brother Trevor Binkley. And I think all we can hope for this morning is that the, the warmth in the room matches the fire in the pulpit. <laughs> all right. It's not that hot. It's not. I think the best time for us to do a, a, a capital campaign, though, for air conditioning is going to be around August 13th or so. So, so get ready. Laying on the pressure. Or our brother Trevor, he's a, he's a dear friend of mine, and um, he actually came to the Gathering Church in 2012 uh, with a vision to ultimately plant a church in the Northwest. And so uh, he and his wife Jess and their daughter Ellie were at the Gathering for, for many years, three, four years or so, uh, served as a pastoral intern with us, and in 2015, uh, planted the Table Church. And the Table Church meets in Gladstone, uh, Oregon here, just to south of us. Uh, the work is going well, and we have the opportunity to hear from our brother this morning. Uh, Trevor is a, is, a, is, a, is a man who can uh, handle the Word of God accurately and precisely and, and with great enthusiasm. Uh, the way that he serves me most is a, is a, is a resource. <laughs> If I've ever asked Trevor the question, have you read this book, the answer is invariably yes, and this is what you will gain from it. He's a very uh, well-read, learned man, and he's a, he's a dear friend, so we're grateful. Come share with us, brother. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be with you all this morning. This is coming home for my wife and I in many ways, so it was always great to come back. I think earlier this year, my partner in, ta- in crime, Thomas, was here, and so you got to, to spend some time with him. But today we're going to be in 2 Timothy, chapter 1. So we want to turn there. 2 Timothy, chapter 1, we'll start at verse 3. We've been going through the pastoral epistles, and this is a passage that has grabbed me, and uh, so I'm excited to share with you. Would you read with me, beginning of verse 3? I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears. I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Who saved us and called us according to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now he has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. Who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle and teacher. Which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. 
among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with and for me? Holy Spirit, apart from your work of illumination this morning, we will waste time. We will work with no gains. So, Spirit, would you come afresh, open up our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to understand and see you more clearly. Jesus, in your name, amen. The missionary C.T. Studd wrote a poem which encapsulates the heartbeat of this passage this morning. So here's a few stanzas. Only one life. Yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice. Gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The year was 203 AD. A great persecution had spread across the church in those days. It was not illegal to be a Christian, but it was illegal to become a Christian. Conversion was met with severe persecution and suffering. Perhaps two of the most famous martyrs of that persecution were women. It was Perpetua and Felicitas and three of their friends. Perpetua was a young, well-to-do woman nursing an infant child. And when she was arrested for converting, her father pleaded with her to abandon her faith. He said, please, don't don't convert. Deconvert. Save yourself. Think of your child. But she refused to deny the faith. The judicial process was quite drawn out, likely because they were hoping to change the young women's minds and their three friends, especially because Felicitas was pregnant at this time. Now, she feared something different. She feared that while pregnant... They would not throw her to the beasts because she was pregnant. So her and her companions prayed fervently that the Lord would grant her birth before the day was to come. And he did. She gave birth and she gave her child up for adoption to another Christian woman. Now, when the guards saw Felicitas moaning in labor pains, they mocked her. They said, how do you expect to face the beasts? How do you expect to deal with that suffering if you can't deal with this? Well, first I'd say they probably don't understand giving birth very well, but she replied, now my sufferings are only mine, but when I face the beasts, there will be another who will live in me and suffer for me since I will be suffering for him. The church historian Justo Gonzalez recounts, we are told that Perpetua and Felicitas were placed into the arena to be attacked by a crazed cow, probably a bull, Having been hit and thrown by the animal, Perpetua asked to retie her hair because loose hair was a sign of mourning, but this was a joyful day for her. And upon retying her hair, the two bleeding women stood in the middle of the arena and they gave each other a kiss of peace and they were put to death with the sword. For Perpetua, Felicitas, and their friends, it was only one life. It 
will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. This passage today is all about suffering. I read a long section because there's a bracketing that takes place and this whole section is dealing with suffering. Now there's other things as well, but the theme of suffering weaves its way through it. So would you read again with me? We'll zoom into verses 3 through 8 to begin with. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Did you catch the four reminders that this section starts off with? Verse 3, Paul says, I remember you constantly in my prayers. Verse 4, I remember your tears. Verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Verse 6, I remind you. See, 2 Timothy is a book of reminding and remembering. Remembering and reminding. Because Paul is facing imminent death. Paul has come to the end. He says at the end of this book, I am already poured out as a drink offering. And so he does what many do on their deathbed. They remember those things in life of such importance. And they seek to remind those around them. Thomas, my co-pastor, his grandmother recently just passed away. And upon her deathbed, she called certain members of the family to them and said, I love you. I want you to know that, that I remember the time you did it, and I love you. It's a book of remembering and reminding. Timothy is told here, he's reminded here of the spirit. He's told to fan into flame. Now, that's an interesting thing. Paul clearly believes Timothy has the spirit, and yet he is called to fan into flame. Well, why? Because he's going to be called to suffer. That's why. Fan into flame, Timothy. This gospel ministry may lead, likely will lead to suffering. So fan into flame the Holy Spirit, which is in you. But to understand this first passage by Paul, I have to give you a little bit more of the context of 2 Timothy. Because if you just read that section I read to you without this context, you think, yeah, okay, you're getting a letter from an older saint maybe, and he's encouraging a younger saint to you know, fan into flame and, and be prepared to suffer. L- let me paint a picture for you. Timothy gets this letter from Paul, likely knowing, likely, the tradition holds true, that Paul was in the Mamertine prison. Now, the Mamertine prison was where Rome sent prisoners they wanted to disappear. It was where they would send the prisoners they didn't want to think about, the ones they were ashamed of, you could say. So imagine Timothy opening this letter from Paul, and tradition again says that he's, he's sitting there in his hole in the ground. He would have likely been chained hand and foot to what was nothing more than just a stone cutout, kind of a bench where he would have sat or slept. Add to this the fact that the cell was also their latrine there was no washing area. There was no release for the bathroom. So it was likely it was the commonplace or excrement as well as where they slept. It said that perhaps there was actually the only venting was into the Roman sewer system. The only way you would eat was because your friends would bring you food to eat. And those are good friends who would walk down into that. But to your amazement as the young Timothy reading this letter from Paul, you hear nothing about that. You hear nothing about the depths of Paul's suffering. Instead, you get the old saint saying, fan into flame the Holy Spirit. Be prepared to suffer, Timothy. Do not be ashamed, Timothy. 
It is an incredible thing to set the first chapter of this letter into its context, to realize the depths of the suffering and yet the call to not be ashamed and to press on. Now, from a practical standpoint, this is Paul writing to an old missionary, Paul writing to young missionary pastor, Timothy. And so the first exhortation is to the pastors here, pastors of the gathering churches. It is a call, a reminder for us to be willing to suffer for the gospel. That's the first most obvious application, that we are called to be those who never duck on gospel issues. That we're willing to suffer incredibly for gospel issues. Now, we live in a country that at least at the present has a fair bit of religious freedom, does it not? But that could be leaving. I'm not sure if you've heard, but recently the California General Assembly passed Bill 2943. The Alliance Defending Freedom outlined four examples of activities which the bill would make or potentially would make illegal. The first, a licensed counselor could not help a married mother of three who is experiencing unwanted attraction for a close female friend or confusion over her identity to overcome those feelings. To counsel someone contrary to those feelings of gender identity would be illegal. Number two, a religious ministry could not hold a conference maintaining sexual purity if the conference encourages attendees to avoid homosexual behavior. Three, a bookstore, including online bookstores, could not sell many recent published books challenging gender identity ideology. And the fourth one, a pastor paid to speak in an event addressing social topics could not encourage attendees that they can prevail over same-sex attraction. It would be illegal. So friends, right now we have a great deal of religious freedom. But there's no guarantee. So pastors of the gathering church, be prepared to suffer. Members of the gathering church, be prepared to suffer. We should not be surprised if that legislation creeps up the West Coast. It tends to do that. California tends to be the one that puts a pin in the map and eventually others fall in line. Now, God may be gracious and merciful and he may stall those hindrances to religious freedom. But we shouldn't hold our breath for that. The repeated message of the New Testament is not super excitement over religious freedom. Yes, we're to pray for our authorities, 1 Timothy 2. Pray for your authorities that you will have peace. But there's far more dealing with suffering and holding up under suffering than there is about hoping for religious freedom. So, while this text is a call to pastors to be willing to suffer, to not bend for the gospel, though I would also say this, and this is why I opened with Perpetua and Felicitas, is that in, in a very real sense, every Christian is a minister of the gospel. We're all called to be those who are gospeling or gossiping the gospel, as it were. And that's why Perpetu and Felicitas are such a great example. Now, we'll say this. My, my church history professor challenged the idea that what Perpetu and Felicitas and their friends did was a good thing. He said, well, is it really that big a deal? I mean, wouldn't it be better to stay alive and to train your kid and catechize your kid? And you certainly understand the sentiments. I mean, the idea that you're going to lay your life down and give your child to somebody else you raised... You're dealing with difficult, difficult discussion there. But I, I believe that with this text from Paul and from others, that Perpetua and Felicitas are heroes, particularly when you consider the warning from Jesus' own mouth through John in Revelation 2.10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I think Paul and John and Jesus would have said some things you don't duck even if that means suffering unto death. 
How about us? Are we willing to believe in Jesus even if it means dying for Jesus? Are we willing to suffer well for the gospel? Now, the moment you bring up this issue of suffering, there are so many issues. There's so many difficulties that come to mind. Some of you here this morning might be suffering the depths of the deepest, darkest trial. And others may have just come out of suffering. So you have to be so careful. But I want to address suffering kind of broadly, and it'll weave its way through this whole message because the whole passage is dealing with it. But the first thing I just say is that suffering raises the issue of why. If the logical problem of evil goes, if God is all good and all powerful, then why is there suffering? Cannot a God who is all good and all powerful create a world with no suffering? Well, again, we'll, we'll circle back to that in time. But if you've read any amount of history, you are well aware of the incredible, unspeakable amount of suffering that has taken place throughout the years. But it gets worse, actually. Because Paul, writing in the depths of this, this suffering, did you notice verse 1? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now, I don't remember the last time you, you I don't know, the last time you read Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, the calling of Paul. He's knocked back, he's blinded, he's told to wait, and all of a sudden, a man named Ananias is approached by Jesus, says, go tell Paul, and this is what you must tell him, you are a chosen instrument of mine, and I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. God's plan most assuredly includes suffering. And that is a hard thing for us to wrestle with. How are we to make sense of that? Well, there's been uh, many different ways throughout the years of how people have approached this issue of suffering. One of them is Richard Dawkins, famed atheist, wrote a book, River Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life. This is what Dawkins wrote. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe is precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Dawkins' honesty is refreshing. He's willing to acknowledge the fact that if you start with matter and time and the gears turn, there's nothing but pitiless indifference. Now, we can come up with philosophical ways of trying to hedge our bets, as it were, but Dawkins is honest. There is nothing. There is no purpose. If there is no purpose, then there is no point. And if there's no point, then suffering is what it is. You just drew the short straw. Sorry for your luck. Now, you may be surprised or may not be surprised that he's one of the only people who goes this far. Most people are unwilling to be consistent on this point. I applaud Dawkins. He's willing to say, no, that's what it is. If you're going to be consistent all the way down, that's what you get. He's a bit of a trailblazer. But of course, there has to be other issues, other options. Well, we don't have time to consider those this morning. But let me put it this way. The main difference and the main issue, the logical problem of evil doesn't solve, of if God is good and if he's all-powerful, then there shouldn't be evil, is this. It assumes that there cannot be a purpose to evil and to suffering. But you notice what Paul says. He clearly sees a purpose in suffering, a very definite purpose. It's by the will of God for this purpose. So some of you might be thinking, okay, well, what about 
the suffering of other types of people groups. Clearly, Paul's suffering was for a purpose. Let's say we grant that. Paul's suffering was for a purpose. It was for the gospel. But what about other kinds of suffering? What about genocide? What about those systemic types of oppression and those deep issues of suffering that are unthinkable? For example, according to the United Nations, the sex trafficking industry brings in $32 billion a year. That is unthinkable. Nine billion of that is from the U.S. Nine point five billion of that is from the U.S. alone. Surely that kind of suffering is not what Paul has in mind. Well, clearly Paul was suffering for a particular mission. But I want to argue that all suffering can be redeemed. That all suffering can be gospel suffering. Now the examples could be multiplied, but Paul's call. For Timothy to suffer is clearly one with purpose for the gospel. But what about those other things? Here's an example of of senseless, ridiculous suffering that was redeemed. I don't know if you've read recently about Rachel Den Hollander. Rachel Den Hollander. She was on the USA gymnastics team, molested by the team doctor. And she came forward multiple times and they kept siding with the doctor. They scoffed and ignored her. If you haven't seen her testimony in court, I encourage you to look at it. January 24th of this year, you can go check it out. And she says this to Larry, her abuser. She says, the Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you to be thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble and you have damaged hundreds. The Bible carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you, she says to the man who abused her. I pray you experience a soul-crushing weight of guilt that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you also. Throughout this process, she says, I have clung to this quote by C.S. Lewis, where he says, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how did I get this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has first some idea of straight. What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? Larry, I can call what you did evil and wicked because it was. And I know it was evil and wicked because the straight line exists. See, if you remove purpose from suffering, you remove any hope of making sense of it. But even suffering, senseless, ridiculous suffering, like what Rachel Den Hollander went through, has gospel implications. It can be redeemed. Which is why she's actually been, been called on the Times most 100 influential people of 2018 on January 24th from her testimony. Before a watching world, she was able to communicate the depths of depravity, the depths of evil and suffering, and the incredible, wonderful grace of God available in the gospel. And more than that, she offered forgiveness to the man who did that. She demonstrates what it looks like for suffering to be redeemed. So again, I know I'm speaking to a room of people who I don't know where you're at in the midst of suffering. But I will tell you this. She's just one example, and many could be given, of how suffering can be redeemed. 
And one of the ways it's redeemed, the practical ways, is through demonstrating forgiveness like Rachel Den Hollander did. You see, Christians are not actually allowed to be those who don't forgive. If she would have gotten up there and said, I don't forgive you, there would have been a conflict because she's claiming to be forgiven. So we have to forgive. That doesn't mean we have to be pen pals or best friends, of course, with everyone who has caused our suffering. But not forgiving is not a Christian option. That's what was so glorious about her testimony. The forgiveness she offered. The open hand. And that is the way the church can be such a bright light in this act of showing how suffering can be turned into a redemptive thing. Let me give you another example. Uh, Tim Keller recounts uh, the shooting of 2006 in a small Amish schoolhouse. The gunman shot 10 victims, five of whom died between the ages of 7 and 13 before turning the gun on himself. Within hours of the suicide murders, members of the Amish community visited the killer's parents and expressed sympathy for their loss. For the gunman. And they offered support in the hard days ahead. When the gunman was buried a few days later, his young widow and her three children were amazed to discover that half of those in attendance were from that Amish community. Here's what's so fascinating. There was a made-for-TV movie done of this whole thing, and it demonstrates why it is that Christians are a beacon. Because in the movie, they showed one of the mothers of the kid who was killed, and she's just ravished and overwhelmed with this idea, and she can't forgive God, and she's furious, and all these things. But that was completely untrue. That's just not the way it was. The world can't understand forgiveness. Apart from Christ, it doesn't make any sense. So they had to change the narrative. They had to change the story. No one would have bought it otherwise. But it really did happen. Christians who suffer shine the greatest light upon the gospel by being those who are quick to forgive, who are willing to suffer well, who are willing to remind that suffering only makes sense if you have a straight line. So that is the first point here that we see, is that we may be called to suffer, and the way we go about suffering shines a spotlight on the gospel, or it hides the glorious reality of his grace. So Timothy, fan into flame the Holy Spirit in you, because suffering's coming, young man particularly in those days. Because remember, converting was a problem. So if Timothy is seen with Paul, there's a chance like, oh, you're one of them and you're going to try to proselytize? Ah, Timothy, fan into fame, the Holy Spirit, which you have. Be prepared to suffer. There's only one life. It will soon be lost. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now, look down real quick at 15 through 18, because now Paul is going to bracket, as I said, this whole section with examples of what it looks like to suffer or not suffer. So 15 through 18, you are aware that all those who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered to me at Ephesus. So Paul, again, he's called Timothy to be prepared for this, and now he's giving examples of what it looks like. He says, all those in Asia have just abandoned me. They were not willing to come near to him. And remember, someone has to bring him his food in that dungeon. But Onesiphorus, he searched and he found me and he came and he cared for me. So Paul gives this beautiful example. This is what it looks like to be those who are willing to truly believe in Jesus because it might cost you suffering and dying for Jesus. 
Now, to be sure that Timothy understands what it is he's being called to suffer for, verses 8 through 12a, Paul reminds him of the gospel. So you're not suffering, Timothy, anything vague. You're suffering for the gospel. So 8 through 12a, look at these with me. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now he has manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. So, Paul has now reminded Timothy of this. Notice the flow of thought which is going on. Timothy, you need to fan into flame so that you suffer. Therefore, for this reason, do not be ashamed because, and he walks through this whole thing of, because by the power of the God, we were saved and called. So God is at work in this power. When God became a man in Jesus, in other words, there was a purpose Uh, Jesus is not the hitchhiker with his towel, if you'll forgive the reference. Uh, That's not what he's doing here. Jesus came for a specific purpose and plan. That's what he says. Verse 10 gives us the second purpose. The first purpose was to save us and call us. The second purpose, you see verse 10 there, was to manifest his abolishing of death, his bringing life, immortality of life through the gospel. So let me set it this way. Typically, we think of the gospel rightly, and we think of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. That is absolutely the gospel. But there's another way to look at the gospel where you zoom out and you set it within its cosmic, within its its entire temporal setting, as it were. And that's what Paul here does. He sets it within the big picture. And what he says is, the gospel guarantees us over here that something's going to happen. And what that is over here is it's going to be the abolishing of death. The death of death and the death of God, as it's been written. Life and immortality. So you see how this connects back to suffering, I hope. When you get the big picture, the whole picture of time, beginning and ending, what you get is that suffering is temporal. That's what he's doing. He doesn't zoom in on the gospel. He could, but he zooms out to show you, no, 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 it's all temporal. That needs to bolster us. That needs to be our strength, our encouragement. He says there's not only purpose in suffering, but there is an end to suffering. The day will come when death will be no more. The day will come when every sad thing will be made untrue. The day will come when our fate will finally be made sight. And every tear will be wiped away, we read. We press on now and suffer now and fan the spirit now because then is coming. So, I already mentioned how Paul's apostleship is by the will of God, but he actually opened with this same idea. Look back up at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. He's laying this all out. He's weaving these themes together. That God's plan and purpose are being unfolded in time. But there's going to come an end. In other words, Paul was willing to suffer and call Timothy to suffer because he knew that he wasn't living for this life. He was living for the next life. He was living for something else. The problem is, is talking about death in our culture is the last great taboo. Uh, Death is the one thing that you just cannot get a lot of secular people to talk about. When it happens, when someone finally dies, it's just, oh, they're resting in peace. You know that? It's amazing to me how many people will say they're resting in peace. 
for someone who's lived a life that is, I mean, even by secular standards, which is incredible to think about, resting in peace, are you sure? Are you sure about that? And I think part of the problem is, for us as Christians, is that we have, because of the last century or so, there's been so much silliness that has kind of taken place, where people said, like, well, you know, Jesus is going to come back on this day, and this is going to happen, and, you know, and, well, no, maybe not, well, Jesus is going to come back this year, and then, well, that didn't happen. Well, it's going to, the world's going to end here, and so I think that even for us Christians, this talk of death, this talk of heaven, this talk of what we're waiting and living for has been put off because it's like the boy who cried wolf. So many people have kind of made these proclamations and gotten it wrong. They were like, well, we know it's happening, but But friends, I think we got to get back to really understanding that we have to live in light of then. That then has to fuel us going forward. It's been well said, preaching and teaching that do not constantly make heaven the Christian's hope and goal are not only unfaithful to the scriptures, but they rob believers of one of the most important perspectives for helping them cope with the pressures here and now. And that's what Paul does. He sets suffering and his call to suffering within the temporal framework. As a matter of fact, he does it in a beautiful way. Look at 12, 12b through 14 with me. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So there's two things here that he's, he's bolstering his case for suffering. First, did you notice how 6, 7, and 8 kind of are a bracket with 12, 13, 14 dealing with the Spirit? So, you know, 7 reads in the ESV, it shows small s spirit, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power. I, I would prefer spirit, Holy Spirit. God gave us the Holy Spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Because it brackets with 14, by that Holy Spirit who dwells within us, he's going to keep us. He will guard us. So the first thing Paul says, as we've already sung this morning, as we've prayed this morning, is that right now, between Jesus' coming and between the end, there is, the Holy Spirit is with us. Fan it into flame. Lean back on him again and again. That's what he's doing. He's reminding him. Sometimes we need those reminders. Remember, that's how he opened it. I remember. I remind. That's what he's doing. So he reminds him of the Holy Spirit and of his calling. But more than that, he sets it in this temporal way, like I said, where he said God's plan was to save and to call and then Jesus came, and then he's coming again. So notice what he does. He says, I am convinced that he will guard until that day what has been entrusted. That day. So what he's saying is, I know that God has created everything, and he's purposed, and he's planned, and his plan is working out in time. And in the middle, at a time, is the right time, as Romans 3 says, Jesus came. And his first appearing guarantees his second appearing. That's what he says. His appearing, verse 10, was manifested, abolishing death, bringing light and immortality to light. So what Jesus came and did guarantees his coming again. It guarantees he's finishing it. So there is some implications of this for us as Christians living in a city like Portland. This entrusting that we've been given. That knowing that his first coming guarantees his second coming. That our whole, the Holy Spirit is with us and, and strengthening us. Is How does that in, impact our witness, our evangelism? How does that influence us in our thinking about our neighbor and our time and our use of our resources? 
whether that be time or whatever that might be. When we're going through this, we, we, we're challenging the members of the table church quite a bit on this. If Jesus is really worth living for and he's worth dying for, then doesn't that mean we better do something that might make us attempt to suffer? Like get out of our holy huddle, our little enclave? We've got to be willing to, even in this hostile environment, and it might be growing more hostile, we have to be willing to be those who really are lights, who really are reaching out. So the gathering church asking you, are you willing to risk? First in evangelism, in relationships, in being turned down, in being stiff-armed. I mean, you are those bigoted people who believe that. Are you willing to risk that? Because that is a practical way that this works out. If Jesus came and it guarantees a second coming and he is the one who is entrusting that message, he's the one who entrusted it and will guard it, shouldn't that send us out? Shouldn't that challenge us to not live comfortably, to get beyond our comforts? You know, when Matt asked me uh, and gave me the tour of the building actually initially, you know, he showed me the stacks of chairs we're sitting here. And he said, we bought this many chairs, and that's all we're getting. We're not getting any more chairs. I praise God. That's awesome. But realize what that means. As this church grows by God's will, and may it grow, it means it's going to send. And as this church grows, and by God's will, it will grow, and it will send, it means saying goodbye. It means being willing to suffer loss. Loss of relationship. Loss of security. Loss of comfort. Loss of familiarity. Gathering church, are you willing to suffer those losses. Is Jesus worth living for, even if it means dying for? Because there is only one life, and will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. That's the flow of the text. But this issue of suffering, I kind of left it hanging there at the beginning. I think that we can solve the logical problem of evil in the sense that we say, well, the logical problem of evil ignores purpose. I think that there is purpose. So if you have purpose without purpose, then suffering is completely meaningless and Dawkins would be right. But is there another option? Is there maybe another way? Is there a better way? Can we say more about why there is suffering? I think we can. Why would God create a world with suffering? I mean, think about it. In the past, there was perfect fellowship and communion among the members of the Trinity. In eternity past, there was love and trust There was holiness. There was no sin. Why would God create a world which was going to turn out like this? I'm sure you've wrestled with it. I'm sure people have asked you that question. Let me attempt to answer this question by first asking another one. When was the last time you experienced something so wonderful that you just had to share it? You experienced something so just like this was life-changingly good and you had to share it. If you spent any time with me, uh, you'll find that uh, I, I get teased for this by my family and, and visitors of the house guests. If you're over for any amount of time and we ask you, oh, have you read this book? Have you seen this movie? Or are you eating this restaurant? And they say no. I'm like, huh? How are you still living and breathing right now if you haven't experienced this? And I, I mean, it's, it's almost like a joke. And if I, if I ask a question, they're like, oh, here comes the face. Because they know I'm going to be like, you, you are not, you're missing out on life. You don't know what living is. You just, you have to stop right now. Hold your breath until you can experience this. And really, because I just, I, I feel like their life is lacking. If they don't have this experience. See, when an experience of something grabs us that much, we want everyone to know. Well, the reason why Jesus chose suffering and death was very much the same thing. See, if God would have made a perfect world, 
If God would have just extended the Trinity, as it were, and just welcomed us all in, in a world where there would have been no sin and suffering and no sorrow and none of that stuff and no tree and no possibility, well, that'd have been wonderful. We would have known God as this God of love. We've known God as this God of power, this God of beauty, this God of community and fellowship. Oh, we would have known God. But we would have only known part of God. Because see, in that world, you don't get to know the God of grace. You don't get to know the God of mercy. You don't get to know the God of long-suffering. You don't get to know the God of forgiveness. Oh, friends, you get far, far less of God. You don't get to know the God who is willing to enter into suffering with us. Friends, apart from the cross, apart from the suffering of this world, you get so much less of God, it is as if you had none of him. When there are things in life that I want and long for my friends to experience, to experience part of them, that just won't do. To experience part of God would be criminal. And God knew that. And so he planned. And he planned a world that he knew it meant sending his son. And he said, I'm going to send my son. And until my son returns, you have the spirit. And you have the knowledge that it's all temporal. That I'm coming back. Stud's poem ends with a wonderful way of thinking about all of this. Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I die, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Friends, are you willing to live for Jesus even if it means dying for Jesus? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are wise enough to see our need to know all of you. That you are loving enough to realize that creating this world meant giving your own son. And Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to suffer and to enter into our suffering so that as we suffer, we might be those who get to see all of you. Would you make it real to us this week, we ask in your name. Amen.